the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Antithesis Summer Season. For the next several weeks, we're going to release episodes that are previously released on this podcast from the 2021-22 recording season. We're doing so because we want to highlight some of the year's most tangible content. I pray that this work will equip you and strengthen you and remind you of the truth of God in these evil days. There is an absolute antithesis between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. Our prayer here on The Antithesis and on the Bar Network by extension is that we can help equip you and your loved ones to know God's truth, stand for God's truth, and watch as God works among us in wonderful ways. Enjoy this re-released episode, and God bless you. subject has gotten more attention in the last few years than critical race theory. But behind critical race theory is what is called critical theory. Very few people understand what critical theory is. In recent days, former Manhattan pastor Tim Keller tweeted this about critical theory. Lots of confusion out there over critical theory. See this helpful lecture by Chris Watkin. It not only explains what a critical theory is, It shows that it is possible to develop a biblical critical theory. End quotation. My name is Owen Strand. This is The Antithesis. I'll be your host on this podcast. Happy New Year to everyone who's listening and passing over from 2021 into 2022 with me. Tim Keller's quote on January 6, 2022 Uh, sparked some discussion on social media over this topic, much of it negative in response to Keller's tweet. Tim Keller is a a former pastor, as many will know, and apologist. And I have, over the years, benefited from Keller in any number of ways. He is one of the figures who is associated with putting the gospel at the center of evangelical theology and practice in basically the last 10 to 20 years. And That impacted my life as it did many other folks' life and also my ministry. So I'm thankful for that effect. And and numerous uh, things that Keller wrote had an effect on me as well. I remember probably almost 15 years ago, not quite that long ago, 13, 10, something like that years ago, giving Keller's book, The Reason for God, to about 10 of my family members for Christmas. I was attempting to try to uh, share the gospel with them and thought, Well, Tim Keller is uh, a gracious, reasoned, thoughtful witness for Christ. And so I'm going to send this book, The Reason for God, to to my family members back in the Northeast, many of them who are not Christians, were not Christians then, and uh, sadly are not Christians now. But uh, I don't know that any conversations came directly from my doing so, but uh, that highlights, that little anecdote highlights uh, how I was engaging Keller and how Keller had uh, benefited me in different ways. So my point in engaging Tim Keller's recommendation of this lecture uh, on critical theory, which I'll talk about in just a minute, is certainly not to attack Keller or burn Keller down or present Keller as if in the past uh, he, he did nothing to help me and others. He certainly did. However, in recent days and recent years, uh, Keller has uh, tweeted and said numerous things that have caused concern and confusion, and even uh, sadness on the part of many of us who formerly appreciated uh, a lot of what he was up to. Uh, This isn't a podcast on the life and legacy and thought of Tim Keller. Uh, I'm not uh, going to engage Keller actually in this podcast further. This is just prologue. I wanted to say these things, though, at the outset 
because uh, Keller is a thoughtful man. And uh, if he's recommending a lecture, uh, this one is by, as he mentioned, Chris Watkin, and it's called Developing a Biblical Critical Theory. It's found on YouTube easily, Developing a Biblical Critical Theory. If Keller's recommending it, though uh, on this subject, uh, I'm guessing, as I saw this tweet yesterday, that I'm going to disagree with his perspective, I'm going to give it a listen. I'm going to I'm going to do what we often don't do in this quick speaking age, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to listen to this talk because I myself want to hear the other side. I want to hear the case that is made for a biblical critical theory. Let's test it. Uh, we're not scared of ideas as Christians. Uh, we're not scared of debate and conversation and hashing things out. Uh, that's actually very much what we stand for. Many people around us don't stand for. Uh, free speech and free thought and free exchange of ideas any longer in 2022. Uh, But we do, as believers, we are not scared of the conversation. We are not closed to uh, fair, conscientious, and uh, gracious debate. We want to have it, actually. Uh, We must have it. We must sort out uh, issues like what critical theory is and how Christians should think about it. So let's let's do just that. In what follows, I'm going to give you seven different reactions to Chris Watkins' lecture, <clears throat> again entitled Developing a Biblical Critical Theory. Watkin is not known to me. I don't believe that I had come across his material before this recommendation from Tim Keller. Uh, it appears that he is a professor at Monash University overseas. Uh, He's written pretty extensively, it looks like, on postmodern thought and different postmodern voices and authors. He is definitely uh, reasoned and reflective and thoughtful as an individual. Um, The lecture that he gives in uh, this talk under the title of Developing a Biblical Critical Theory is uh, not for the faint of heart. It, it, It doesn't come across in any brash form but it definitely is muscular in the sense that there is a lot to think through and even peel back in this talk. I can't, though, in the end, tell you that I recommend uh, Chris Watkins' approach uh, laid out in Developing a Biblical Critical Theory. I'm going to explain why at some length in this podcast, and I'm doing so at some length Again, not because I I want to burn down those I disagree with. I'm doing so because a good deal of edification and even instruction, understanding, wisdom, can come from what used to be called polemical theology. Nobody really wants to be a polemicist in the mainstream evangelical world today, although many who would decry such an undertaking speak and act polemically at different points. But um, in Acts 18 and other texts, we know from the example of Apollos that Apollos reasoned with the Jews, and in doing so, uh, Acts 18 tells us, greatly strengthened uh, believers around him as he engaged non-Christian thought. Um, He greatly strengthened the Christian community. And so if all we do is polemics, that might not be ideal for our spiritual state, but actually putting different systems up against one another, putting biblical Christianity, in other words, up against other forms of thought, other other systems of thought, is one of the major ways that you can spark growth and maturity as a Christian thinker uh, and as a Christian man or woman in this world. So that's all, as I say, prologue uh, as to why we tackle this on this podcast. Uh, It's not to score points or any such matter. Uh, This lecture was given, I should say, it appears in March uh, 2021, and it was given for Reform Theological Seminary, uh, its New York City campus, although it's kind of funny because the lecture's on Zoom, so like a lot of education in recent years, though RTS New York was hosting the online talk from Chris Watkin. It was, in fact, online. And it was given 
as part, it appears, of the 2021 Enrichment Series with uh, the following after the colon there, Apologetics, Ethics, Critical Theory, and Philosophy. Clearly, RTS uh, New York is trying to spark dialogue and debate and conversation about topics like critical theory, and uh, it's worth engaging. So what follows is my breakdown of Watkins' talk for um, RTS New York. I don't know exactly who was watching him. I couldn't see student faces in the Zoom session or whatever it was, uh, and I don't know anything broader about this enrichment series or even who hosted it. Uh, but here is my engagement of Watkin. What I'm going to do, by the way, is not try to go systematically, but rather give you seven responses of my own to the talk. First, the handling of critical theory in Watkins's, in Watkins's talk, if I could myself talk, is opaque. The presentation of critical theory is not easy to pin down. At the 940 mark or thereabouts, when I say a mark, a timestamp, uh, it's approximate, please understand. Uh, Watkin says this, critical theory is suspicious to claims of knowledge. At the 1006 mark, he says critical theory uh, challenges the status quo. At the 12 minute mark, he says critical theories make some things visible. At the 1234 mark, Critical theories make some things valuable. They code some actions as good, Watkins says, and other actions as bad or evil. So basically, following uh, Kant and Kant's approach to philosophy, a critical theory is suspicious of an overarching system of knowledge. And so the focus in a critical theory is not so much on constructing uh, a meta understanding of knowledge, a critical theory, quoting Watkins directly, is suspicious of claims to knowledge. And so a critical theory attempts to really work on the side of uh, major bodies of thought or worldviews. That's my term. Watkins doesn't really like that term. He prefers the term world. A critical theory, then, is not expressly and exactly defined in this talk, developing a biblical critical theory. This is not to say from the outset that because the handling of critical theory is opaque, there's nothing further to say about the talk. It's simply uh, me noting at this point that if you're giving me a talk on a subject it benefits me to know exactly what your definition of the subject in question is. And Watkins says a number of elements that he sees as constructing a critical theory, but um, the definition of critical theory that he is working with, nonetheless, at least by my lights, my limited understanding, remained rather opaque throughout. You have to work hard in listening to Watkins's talk, as with other such talks along the lines of this subject to uncover exactly what it is that you are dealing with. And that should, I, I will go further here, that should concern you to some degree. Again, you wouldn't dismiss the lecturer in question for being opaque about his subject, but you would say, that's a little strange. We're, we're already in some strange territory when you're encouraging me to develop a biblical critical theory, but I don't precisely know what it is. I know that it's suspicious of claims to knowledge. It challenges the status quo. It makes some things visible. It makes some things valuable. Coding some things is good, others is bad. But what precisely I'm dealing with, I'm not entirely sure. It's not a worldview, you tell me. Uh, and yet, uh, I'm not exactly sure how to fit it into my own system. Second response to Watkins's talk. I found the treatment of truth in this talk to emphasize the inadequacy of knowledge. So this lecture focuses on the inadequacy, or to use Watkins's more common term, partiality of knowledge, the partialness, I should say, of knowledge. At about the 1115 mark, here's what Watkins says. Our experience of the world is in large measure about the very small percentage of things we choose to pay attention to, 
and the very large number of things we choose to ignore. The fraction of the world that we notice is therefore always partial. We never have a full picture, Watkins argues, present to our consciousness of anything. We always make choices about what to pay attention to, moving ahead just a bit. Some things are visible to us, and some things are screened out from what we're aware of. That's just part of being a finite creature. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. He goes on to say, that's just the way we live. And then uh, further on in the talk at about the 4640 mark, he says this, could it be that each of us is seeing a part of God's complex reality? The takeaway here under the second response is that for Watkins, knowledge is basically always partial. He said directly that we never have a full picture present to our consciousness of anything. There's a form of this that um, a Reformed Christian who does not embrace critical theory or any other form of, of it uh, can affirm. In other words, we never know as God knows. We are creatures, always creatures, even redeemed, spirit-indwelt creatures. We're creatures. On the other hand, the knowledge that God gives us, though we do not grasp it perfectly as God does, nonetheless is God's own knowledge that we are able to apprehend. So, the worldview given us in Scripture, this is all me responding, the worldview given us in Scripture is never held by us as perfect people. We cannot be perfect. <laughs> but what we know from God, we know truly. That which God has made clear to us, we can declare clearly. We really can then uh, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We really can Defend the good deposit of the gospel, 2 Timothy 1, uh, 10 to 14. We really can know God's truth. So there's a real potential challenge here that is not resolved in this lecture by Chris Watkins. Yes, we never know perfectly as God knows. But if you overplay the creaturely dimension of Christian knowledge, knowledge that the Christian has, you place yourself in the territory of postmodern skepticism. And I fear that's where Watkins basically has placed us, wittingly or unwittingly. The fraction of the world that we notice is therefore always partial. So each of us is only seeing a part of God's complex reality. In one sense, true, but in another sense, not true. Because the elements of biblical truth that you and I know, we know for sure. We think of the, the prologue, the opening to Luke's gospel, and how Luke tells Theophilus there in the first several verses of Luke 1, that he is writing so that Theophilus can have certainty concerning the things of Jesus. Theophilus is not told by Luke that he is getting a partial account of the truth surrounding Jesus. Theophilus is not said to have partial knowledge that he will then need to uh, chorus, correlate with uh, the partial knowledge of others, uh, leading to Theophilus comprehending some limited part of the general whole. No, Theophilus is said to have a kreos, certainty, concerning Christ. The Bible gives us certainty. The Bible yields truth. This is why when we trust in Christ, we are justified by faith. We are wholly trusting Christ. We don't have our fingers tied behind our back, crossed behind our back. We are fully believing in the biblical revealed truth about Jesus 
Christ. This case, then, for a biblical critical theory suffers from what amounts to a postmodern treatment of knowledge that emphasizes not the fullness of the knowledge that God gives, as the New Testament does, but the inadequacy of knowledge. And that's a big challenge for us to overcome if we accept this system. In other words, this the critical theory that we are encouraged to adopt here is a good sight more uh, inadequate in its base of knowledge than what the scripture gives us. More on that to come. There's an additional problem here with Watkins's case. Watkins is telling us that we can only see a part of reality. But here, we must respond in a kind of Christian Humean way and recognize that the system offered us here cannot build itself. In other words, Watkins is not operating as if he knows partial truth about critical theory. Watkins is is operating as if he knows full truth about the way we know. He tells us we can only have partial truth, but yet his system offers full truth. His system is the overarching narrative that will make sense of the world. Again, he doesn't want to use the term worldview. He uses the term world. But Watkins may not see that he is not acting as if he is giving us a partial vision of reality. He is acting as if his system fully explains how to make sense of the world. In truth, then, Watkins' uh, whole system has a fatal flaw at the center of it. Third response to this lecture on developing a biblical critical theory. The lecture downplays the role of doctrine as central to our formation. It downplays the role of doctrine. Embedded in a discussion about the nature of knowledge at roughly the 1958 mark, Watkins says this, some people, he argues, argue that we are fundamentally storytelling animals, first and foremost, and everything most fundamentally is a story. He continues, other people will say concepts are the most basic figures and everything is at bottom a rational idea or reducible to a rational idea. Others will say that behaviors and habits are upstream of everything else. But no single category of figures, Watkins argues, controls all the others all of the time. I think to assume that it does is actually a symptom of modernity for ways in which we could cash out in the Q&A in which you're interested. End quotation. This is a line of approach that has gotten some traction in recent years thanks to Charles Taylor, uh, who Watkins cites, and to some degree, James K.A. Smith uh, in the Christian community who has really adapted uh, Taylor's uh, thought to more of a Protestant grid. It's become common to say that doctrine is or, or rational thought is part of what shapes us, but habits, behaviors, stories also fit uh, into that shaping mold as well. And Watkins explicitly, as you heard me say, denies that one category uh, controls all the others. So he has more of the modern understanding, the more recent understanding, that is, of um, the nature of human knowledge. He goes on to say at the 2605 mark, in in a different discussion, this. In terms of behavior, think of Christians meeting together on the Lord's Day. There's a pattern of behaving. These patterns, moving ahead, and rhythms of experience and reality, we find that if you like the raw material for elaborating a biblical critical theory, end quotation. All right, we need to synthesize here. What am I, what am I getting at? This is uh, somewhat high-level intellectual stuff, so it might not sound like that big of a deal to some, but actually, this is a pretty explosive claim. Um, And as I say, Watkins appears to me 
to have embedded a critique of the role of doctrine as central in a broader discussion uh, such that many would, would not catch it. He, he labels this approach uh, under the term concepts. Concepts are the most basic figures. Everything is at bottom a rational idea, reducible to a rational idea. And Watkins very clearly critiques that idea. What I would say is, again, working from the biblical mind, doctrine is at the center of everything. What you believe about God, the world God has made, yourself, salvation, where things are headed, really does drive how you live. You will not always operate consistently with what you believe, whether as an unbeliever or a believer, let that be said. But nonetheless, doctrine is central for all of the Christian life, or if you will, understanding doctrine in a slightly different way, what you believe is central for the non-Christian life. This is inescapable. It cannot be otherwise. It's a broader discussion, but citing what Watkins said about meeting together on the Lord's Day, he classed that under a pattern of behaving. So that would be a way of edging away from beliefs drive everything we do. No, we have certain habits that form us that are not rational that we just do. That's kind of the argument, I think, that is behind uh, his claim there. But wait, (laughs) stop the train. Why would Christians meet together on the Lord's Day? Why would they do so? They do so because the Bible teaches that they should do so. They do so because there is a doctrine of the church. There is a doctrine of gathered worship. Uh, At least for several millennia, that doctrine of gathered worship has involved actual, embodied, present worship. The gathered body. Sharing, when it observes the ordinances of, uh, of the Lord's Supper, for example, actual bread and actual wine. Not uh, taking that yourself according to a virtual screen. No, the church is an actual gathered body, physically embodied gathering. Christians don't just show up meeting together because they have this acquired habit of doing so. This is part of why I have long been concerned about this line of approach that de-emphasizes doctrine and Christian formation and brings in significantly habits and other such matters into the mix. The reason we have habits is because we believe in certain practices. We believe in their value. There are ideas we hold and we operate on those ideas. Watkins, to be clear, doesn't really suss out the implications of this kind of shifted approach. But if you are tracking closely and thinking carefully, there will be lots of implications of downgrading doctrine from its central role in the Christian life and the Christian church. A lot more to say there, but we'll leave the point at that place. Fourth response. This lecture, Developing a Critical Biblical Theory, downplays the role of the cross in history. At about the 2740 mark, Watkins says this. uh, An appropriate biblical critical theory, according to him, shouldn't unduly privilege certain moments in salvation history at the expense of certain other passages. End quotation. Here is elsewhere. Uh, I'm not familiar with all the places Watkins' thought goes and is intended to go. I don't always know what he is up to, (laughs) to put it slightly more colloquially. But I know this, that too uh, landed in my theological radar system. It's not that you and I get to pick and choose what parts of salvation history we like and then we discard the others. Absolutely not. But actually, in the biblical witness itself, certain salvific events 
are said to have central importance. That never means the downgrading of the others, the lessening of the importance of the others. But there is throughout the Old Testament, a focus on the sacrificial system of atonement. And then in the New Testament, there is a focus on the cross of Christ. You might say, yeah, but Strand, that's because you're this conservative evangelical theologian and you've been trained in those kind of circles. And so you really talk a lot about Jesus' blood. Others, others in other traditions talk a lot about, you know, the resurrection or the ascension or other matters like that. You're just choosing what you think is most important. Others make different choices and the Bible doesn't really settle the issue. That's basically what some people would say against me in agreeing with this basic uh, affirmation that Watkins makes. The problem with the challenge, to my challenge to Watkins, is that the Bible itself, as I say, emphasizes certain salvific events. Think of a a text like Revelation 5, 8 and following. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. He's identified as the lamb. Note that. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I, this is John, looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why quote Revelation 5, 8 through 12? Because it shows us that in the age to come, Precisely how you understand that age differs among Christians. There's different positions. Nonetheless, everyone agrees of all eschatological systems, millennial views, that in the age to come, in eternity to come, this passage speaks of Jesus being identified by his cross. Jesus is identified throughout the book of Revelation as the Lamb. And Jesus is associated frequently throughout Revelation with his blood. So the death of Jesus Christ is seen here and elsewhere in the New Testament as the central salvific act of history. I don't know how Watkins would precisely respond to what I am saying, but I can say this. It is definitely the case that we must privilege certain moments in salvation history, not at the expense of other passages, but in being faithful to the Bible itself. The ascension is not unimportant, for example. It's important, and it deserves more attention than it often gets in many conservative evangelical churches. Nonetheless, the focus of the New Testament with regard to Christ is not on the ascension. The focus is squarely on the cross of Christ, on the death of Jesus, on the blood that cleanses sinners like you and me from our sin. That is how epical Christ's crucifixion is. It is the central moment in all of history. It is where our salvation comes from. It is where we were purchased. So we must track these different moments in a talk like this. We're not always sure what is at play. And Watkins certainly cites numerous theologians who would more or less agree with what I have said. Many of them would agree with what I said. Many of them shaped me. He quotes D.A. Carson, uh, for example, not long after saying what I just read him as saying. Uh, But nonetheless, even a figure like a Carson has written a book called Scandalous, which is on the death of Christ. And in that book, Carson shows 
that in the Gospels, uh, the chapters that lead to the cross are, are not really the first part of the story disconnected from the second part, but everything is leading up to the death of Christ as the apex of his work, followed, of course, by his resurrection. The resurrection is, is absolutely essential <laughs> for Christians. We do not live eternally without it. We do not know God without it. We are of all men most without hope if the resurrection has not happened. But the resurrection only makes sense in light of the death of Jesus, in light of the crucifixion. And it is the crucifixion that yields our purchasing back from the dead by God. Fifth response. This lecture uses straw men to set up the vaunted middle way, the middle way that has become so popular in our time. Watkins is explicit about the need to find a kind of balanced position at numerous points in his talk. At about the 35-30 mark, he quotes Chesterton as saying more or less that the virtues of the Christian faith have been isolated from one another. And he goes on to say this, and therefore it's not surprising that given a choice between two camps or two positions in our culture, the Bible wants to say, well, neither of them. And it presents something better than both, that neither of these two partial positions is able to imagine on its own terms. Time and time again, when we bring the Bible's figures to bear on the culture's science, we find that it reveals both options that are offered to us to be distorted, partial, heretical versions of a bigger biblical truth. And this move, he says, of cutting across and rearranging the false cultural dichotomies in our society is one that I call diagonalization, end quotation. Quite a term, by the way, diagonalization. At first, in reading it on my screen, I almost said dragonalization. And what a what an approach to Christian theology that would be. That was for free. Uh, Watkins goes on after saying that to then decry a justiceless love or a loveless justice. What's taking place here? Well, simply this. We have a couple of straw men set up on either side. Nobody that I know of, nobody in their right mind in the Christian world argues for a justiceless love. And nobody argues for a loveless justice. I'm thinking here of the conservative evangelical world. You can find all sorts of people saying all sorts of things in the broader theological world, yes. But we are not faced with a choice, a real choice, between justiceless love or loveless justice. Here again, things are opaque. Pinch me if you've heard me say that already about this talk. Watkins does not drill down to talk further about, let's say, critical race theory or discussions in our society about systemic racism or mercy or any of these matters. He keeps it pretty high level, but he is offering some pretty strong thunder here in terms of what he's actually advocating for. At the 4808 mark, he says this as well. The Bible looks at the dichotomies that are offered to us in our world, and it sees that both of them, if you want to put it this way, are Christian heresies. Strong term. That's my comment. Continuing with Watkins. That both take something of God's truth, make it the whole thing, and cut it off from the rest. Uh-huh. This is very interesting. Continuing with Watkins. You want to rearrange them to say both of them are inadequate to show the bigger picture that both of these reductive choices are a part of, end quotation. I stress once more that what Watkins practically means in terms of on-the-ground conversations is not laid out for us in this talk. But suffice it to say that if I'm making an educated guess building off of his earlier critique of justiceless love or loveless justice, and also knowing uh, in America, for example, that we have a two-party system politically and these kind of matters, Watkins is arguing 
for a kind of Hegelian approach to theology. You have basically a kind of fundamentalist side that champions probably uh, loveless justice, at least according to that paradigm. And then you have a kind of soft-hearted evangelical side um, that is the side that probably is drawn to a justiceless love. So there's a middle way here that Watkins is setting up. We don't know exactly what discussions he's engaging. He has in the back of his mind here. But with regard to critical theory and how it is applied today, it is frequently uh, argued that, for example, conservative Christians would be for justice, uh, at least a form of justice, and uh, less conservative Christians would be for love, and there is a golden mean to be found in the middle. All of this builds from what we talked about under my second response, that no group has a full apprehension of reality. Both groups have, at best, a partial apprehension of reality. And so here's yet another concept to bring into the mix that it seems that Watkins is employing. Standpoint epistemology is at the very least uh, a, a potential contributor to this grid that Watkins is constructing. I don't know uh, how he engages standpoint epistemology. He doesn't use the term, but suffice it to say that many people today believe that uh, you can only know a portion of the truth based on your background, your social location, your heritage, um, particularly if you are white, limits your grip on reality and the truth, and you're having a minority status in terms of race and other categories means that you will have a greater ability to lay hold of truth that has been obscured by a system of basically white supremacy. I'm not trying to put words in Watkins's mouth, but this is all very interesting because Watkins's argument for accepting a partial apprehension of reality fits very nicely, at the very least, with uh, an embrace of standpoint epistemology. And all of this builds toward the conclusion that whatever is going on with Watkins and his system and and, and all the rest, this all builds to the conclusion that um, we, we can't trust any one camp Instead, we need to be hearing from all sides and synthesizing, building down to uh, the the synthesis. You have the thesis uh, and you have the antithesis that arises against it. And what you need resultingly is the synthesis. The middle way in practical form then is the way forward if you wanted to use a related term, the third way. So if I, was apl- if I was applying this to discussions of critical race theory, for example, which is often where these kind of conversations go, then I would be saying something like the unwoke side doesn't have it right. They see some truths. They, they have a partial apprehension of reality. The woke side sees some truths, or if you like, has a partial apprehension of reality. We do best when we synthesize the two sides and we move into a kind of middle way or third way and we show that all the options that are offered to us are at best distorted, partial, heretical versions, that's Watkins's term, that's strong language, of a bigger biblical truth. It's not then that the conservative Christian side is all right. It's not that the softer evangelical side is all right. It's that there is a kind of synthesis that needs to take place on any given issue. By the way, this approach, once more, it's worth noting, sets itself up as not the third way approach, but the right way to build a theory of knowledge. I could spell that out further. That is simply worth noting. Does Watkins play by his own rules? Short answer, he doesn't. He doesn't operate as if his knowledge is partial. 
he operates as if, as if his knowledge is full. Now, to be fair to Watkins, he does emphasize that there is fullness of reality laid out in Scripture. God's perspective, so to speak, is the right perspective, according to Watkins. But Watkins seems to have been so influenced by different systems of thought operating today that he then moves to the, to the standpoint that no human person can lay hold of that true truth rightly. The best you can do is to have two different sides and then synthesize their arguments. More on that in just a minute. Sixth response. This lecture overemphasizes the goodness of non-Christian thought. And this is really where things do get clearer to some degree. He talks about Freud, for example, at the 5335 mark and says, I think what we want to do is show how Freud is onto something, but doesn't quite grasp the reality of it, of identity in a biblical frame. So in a sense, we can come along and help him and say, what I think you're trying to get at, Sigmund, is this. This is the Christian answer, in other words, this is me talking, continuing with Watkins, in this fuller picture. And I think you've got part of it, but I don't think you've got all of it. We're taking Freud, Watkins says, through a 1 Corinthians 1 journey. Later, at 54.15 or thereabouts after that, he says, we're neither simply attacking Freud, nor simply affirming him, nor cherry-picking little bits of what he says as if we can extract them from the rest. It's a more fundamental engagement of him than that. Later, 57.15 mark, he argues that biblical critical theory is going to mean that whatever we encounter, we'll be able to look at it with an open mind, so there's going to be something here that is of value, because the only thoroughly evil thing is the devil. And there's going to be something here that's to reject because the only good one is God and he is not in this world. And so it leaves the Christian with a wonderful openness, a critical, in the best sense of the term, a critical openness to the whole of culture. So that seems to be, this is in the question and answer portion of his talk with the RTS New York City students, what he thinks critical theory is. Critical theory does not tell you precisely what to believe in different matters. Critical theory is a means of approach, and it leaves you, according to Chris Watkins, with a wonderful openness, a critical openness, to the whole of culture. Practically, that means that you don't burn down non-Christian systems of thought, neither do you wholly affirm them. You take them, as he says in several places, he loves this metaphor, you take them on a 1 Corinthians 1 journey. We would need to talk further about what that means and, and how even to understand that rightly. Uh, I, I don't have the time to do that. This podcast is already fairly epically long, so we'll save that for another day. But suffice it to say that um, this lecture overemphasizes the goodness of non-Christian thought. This is a huge subject. Basically, what has happened in evangelical circles, even reformed evangelical circles in the last 15 years, is that it has been argued that in places like 1 Corinthians 1 and another major place to go, Acts 17, biblical speakers and actors are, at least to a serious degree, not only engaging non-Christian thought and non-Christian culture, but are, to some extent, affirming it seeing it as right, seeing it as good. If you really want to get your arms around the discussion over critical theory, you've got to do business with those texts and others, because that is where a great portion of the discussion goes. To give you my very quick response to the claim that biblical authors and actors affirm non-Christian thought in Acts 17, for example, I want to tell you this. It is true that biblical authors engage common ideas, ideas that the natural man is himself thinking through and acting on. Further, it is true that there is common grace in this world. So 
a person being an unbeliever, even holding a false worldview, will still get a number of things right. They do not have the grounds by which uh, those things can be true according to their own system, but they will nonetheless, because of God's common grace, be able to understand certain realities. They have, Romans 2, 14 to 16, a conscience, for example, so they know right from wrong. Now, their system as an unbeliever will always deny what their conscience affirms, that which really is true. They will always be undercutting, in other words, in their fallen state, uh, the grounds for right and wrong. The only actual grounds there can be is God himself. God is the grounds of right and wrong. But the unbeliever never accepts and promotes and loves the biblical God in his sin. So he's always working against what he actually operates by, system of right and wrong, to speak only of the conscience. Nonetheless, what Paul does in Acts 17, 17, 34 is not affirm Greek thought. He actually critiques it. He recognizes, yes, that uh, certain individuals understand uh, that there is a God, there is a divine being. But Paul does not affirm uh, the common understanding of that God. He, he actually shows in Acts 17 how the common thought that many of those around him hold, that he engages in that passage, is totally wrong. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about the judgment of God. He talks about the creator. So Paul doesn't affirm non-Christian thought in Acts 17. There are contact points with it, yes. But he's not affirming part of the system, and he's not taking it on a journey. <laughs> he's only really taking it to the woodshed. And that's exactly what he says the Corinthians should do in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. He talks about destroying lofty opinions raised against the wisdom of God, not affirming them, not embracing them, not seeing the good in them, not synthesizing them, but destroying them. Does this mean that every system, this is me talking again, does this mean that every system is equally wrong? No. Some non-Christian systems of thought, for a variety of reasons, bump up against more of the truth than others. Many of us would be uh, uh, far happier, that's too strong a term, many of us would recognize that there is going to be more truth affirmed um, in Catholic theology than is going to be found in Stalinism or Maoism or Nazism, for example. That's an extreme example, but it is nonetheless an important one. We, we can't get into a whole discussion of, of the distinctions between the two and the similarities, of course, but we're going to say Catholic doctrine is going to, in many cases, absolutely contradict what Hitler and the Nazis stood for. And we're thankful in common grace terms for that reality. So all systems are not created equal. There is common grace out there in addition. But that does not mean that the Bible is helping us to affirm non-Christian thought. There are contact points between Christian truth and worldly ideologies. There is a spectrum of truth within non-Christian ideologies. Some systems get more right than other systems. But that does not lead us to say, ah, let us then not attack Freud. Let's find the good in Freud. Let's repurpose Freud for our own ends. If we study Freud, we're going to see that he's engaging real questions. We're going to see that he may say some true things, but we're not going to affirm as believers Freudianism. We're not going to try to pass it on to our people. We're not going to try to come up with a, a biblical Freudianism or a Christian Freudianism. We may well spotlight where Freud got at at least was, was trying to tackle real matters that we faced, like the question of identity, for example. That was a major preoccupation of Freud. But we should not pass on to our, to our church, for example, 
a biblical Freudianism or a Christian Freudianism. You can show where Freud engaged questions that we engage, and even where he saw certain gleanings uh, of reality, but you're not, no sound Christian following a passage like 2 Corinthians 10 or Colossians 2.8 is going to say, ah, okay, now I've got grounds for Christian Freudianism or Christian white supremacy or Christian white nationalism, whatever that means, or Christian Stalinism. No one's coming up with a Christian case for lynching today. So this is my concluding point. This talk, this lecture, suffers from trying to offer a blended theory rather than biblical truth. Biblical truth is there for the taking. It's there for the proclaiming. It's not buried, and it's not hidden. The Bible does not assume that because we are creatures, creatures who do battle with sin on a daily basis, we will then be unable to proclaim and present biblical truth. You do not see the apostles, I was getting at this minutes back, saying, I stand here amidst secular people who do not agree with me, and I present a partial understanding of the truth. And I hear summon you, who are not a Christian, to offer your presentation of the truth. And we will synthesize, or even in intra-Christian debate, here is my partial understanding of reality. You offer your partial understanding of reality, and hopefully we can come out with some kind of helpful third-way synthesis. No. In Acts 4, 5 to 12, for example, Peter stands up before many Jewish leaders, including Annas the high priest, and he proclaims biblical truth. Verse 8 of Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known. Listen to the declarative nature of Peter's language here. It's very important. We want to talk and speak and act like biblical leaders and voices and authors. We need to be declarative in our speech. We need to proclaim in our speech. All right, back to verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is how the apostles preach. They preach, as I say, declaratively, in a proclamatory way. They have, to speak more simply, God's truth. They offer it to the world. They don't focus on the inadequacy of their knowledge. They focus on the truth of God, on declaring the truth of God as laid out, as found in, the word of God, to everyone they can preach to. That's their mission. That's their theory, in air quotes. In reality, it's no theory at all. If we overemphasize the creaturely dimension of knowledge, if we overemphasize our inadequacy, we will lose sight of the true truthfulness, to use Schaeffer's terminology, of God's truth. It's truth that is grounded in God. It is truth that is true at all times, for all peoples, in all places. It it doesn't need to be theorized. It doesn't need to be merged. It doesn't need to be enhanced. It doesn't need to be modified. It simply, honestly, needs to be presented. 
the gospel, to think of evangelism for a minute, doesn't need any help. There's no new word to add to the gospel. And culture, if I'm really pressing in here to where some of where uh, these discussions that Watkins and others have entered into go, the culture has not changed such that there is a need to present biblical truth and the gospel in a different way or to enter into the conversation not so much with biblical truth but with a focus on what is working for the natural man and then show how Christian doctrine is that which is going to work. That's one of the themes that Watkins engages in a few places in this talk. Now, in saying all this, I'm not trying to intimate, I do not believe as I sit here today, that in this lecture, Chris Watkins has denied the biblical gospel, does not believe in it, and does not want people to believe in it. I do not know Chris Watkins, but that is not my sense coming away from this, that he is trying to weaken our confidence in God's truth and God's gospel. But if you embrace the idea that we need to develop something called, in this lecture, a biblical critical theory, that will be the outcome. You may intend that. You may not intend that at all. You may be trying to help the church apologetically and evangelistically make its case in a world that now does not value knowledge and belief for its own sake, but values knowledge and belief for the way it works, for what it accomplishes. But we do very much need to continue presenting the truth of God, not according to any theory, not according to the grid laid out for us by philosophers of any scheme or camp or system, but simply as it is contained in Scripture, we will always bring biblical truth into conversation with unbelieving thought. We want to do that. We're not scared of that. We don't simply quote Bible verses in the public square or in the uh, campus classroom or on cable TV, whatever the case may be. We definitely do quote Scripture. We are distinct from many who claim to be Christian in that we do not believe that uh, engaging with unbelievers means we lay down the scripture and only pick up the tools of reason to try to fashion an apologetic they can believe and trust and love. No, we, we quote scripture, and then, yes, we think through issues raised to us. But in doing so, we are not affirming non-Christian thought. We are always working to show how, ultimately, every system but Christianity fails. Why does it fail? Why do, why do ideologies not work? They don't work because they're not true. That's the reason they don't work, ultimately. We've raised a good many issues in this podcast. There's so much more to talk about. Honestly, I've really opened up several windows only to quickly hasten on from them in this episode. Nonetheless, I've tried to put some things down by which to help Christians think through the issue of critical theory and this new push for biblical critical theory or Christian critical theory. This is this is a new emphasis in these months that I am seeing pop up. Earlier, we were told a few years ago to embrace the critical theory of a certain camp, uh, the critical theory of the Frankfurt School, for example, the mid-20th century. Watkins denies that his brand of critical theory, he does this at the outset of his talk, he denies that his brand of critical theory is that kind of critical theory. He calls that narrow critical theory and argues that what he is offering is broad critical theory, is a, is a critical theory that, that um, isn't hostile to, to Christian truth claims and Christian reality. 
But though it seems that Watkins is operating with the best of intentions and goals, ultimately, there is no kind of critical theory that the Christian can firm. People mean different things by that terms. And frankly, the conversation does get confusing. It gets technical and esoteric. Fundamentally, though, all that we need to engage unbelievers and build up the church, we have in the Word of God. All that we need is sound doctrine. That's what we offer. And that is what we bring into engagement with unbelieving thought. We're not trying to synthesize sound doctrine with unsound doctrine. We're trying to show how sound doctrine both destroys lofty, secular, and natural opinions, enables us not to be taken captive by godless philosophies and ideas, and even more than that, builds us up into the fullness of Christian maturity. Do we need a biblical critical theory? People mean different things by using uh, such a term, biblical critical theory. Here's what we actually need. Biblical truth. We need the word of God. We need sound doctrine. That is what the world is starving for. That is what Christians are lacking in sadly too many cases. And that is what God has put his store behind. That is what God has promised will save the lost and grow the church into the fullness of spiritual maturity. The word of God, the doctrine of Christ, the good deposit. That's what we need to proclaim. That's what we need to offer. And that's what we ourselves need to treasure up in our hearts. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.